let's think about the, the, the truth that there is no one on the earth that has ever impacted the world the way a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi did, who ministered in a little area of Galilee, in a little country of Israel that was out of the way from what was taking place in the Roman Empire in those days. And his love, his care, his miracles, his seeking sinners. And, and now you go, oh, I'm coming to church here. He's calling me a sinner already. But remember, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And when he ran into sinners, he was at a meal with a Pharisee. And in those days, you, the, the, the public could come in and experience what the, the rabbis were talking about. And a prostitute came in the house and she wept at the feet of Jesus. And she wiped the tears with her hair and Simon was appalled, the Pharisee was appalled. But Jesus said, who loves more? The one who is forgiven much or the one who is forgiven little? And Simon said, the one who's forgiven much. And Jesus said, and so this woman will love much because her sins are forgiven. Think of that compassion on a sinner. How many people in the church look down on people that are trapped by sin, but Jesus saw people chained in sin. And because of that, the world has received him. And there are two billion professed Christians on the planet today. Two billion. And Jesus calmed the winds and the waves. He, and he didn't calm them by praying, Lord, would you calm the wind and the waves? He stood up on the boat and said, cease and be still. And they did. And the disciples said, who, who is this? That even the wind and waves obey. Years ago, I was playing tennis and it got really gusty and windy. And I screamed at the wind, cease and be still. And I'm, and I'm not telling you a lie. It blew harder. It was like... <laughs> as if God was saying to me, what are you doing, you know? Jesus put his hands on lepers and healed them. Told a woman caught in the act of adultery, I don't condemn you, go your way and sin no more. He healed people who were paralyzed, he forgave sin. The, the, what Jesus did was the greatest acts that this world has ever seen. And when you study the life of Jesus, it is so moving. When you get into the things that happen, the calling of the disciples, the betrayal, the death, it's the most tragic story ever told. Jesus died a death that is as bad as a death that anybody has ever died. And when you, when you back up a little bit and see he was betrayed by a best friend, our good friend, he was denied by another good friend, and all of his followers scattered, and he went to the cross alone, except for his mom, and your mom will follow you anywhere. And John, the youngest of the disciples, the youngest one is the only one that went to the cross. Isn't that interesting? And you know what? Life is a tragedy. I'm coming to church on Easter Sunday morning. You're telling me life is a tragedy, but I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You think you can get through life and you think you can dodge tragedy. You think I'm going to make it through life. I'm just going to have a good life. I'm going to get my retirement all set up and I'm going to make it through life. But somewhere along the line, tragedy huts you down and it hits you between the eyes. And sometimes it does again and again, and I've been through that. I know what it's like to face tragedy, and I know what it's like for you to. And the story of Jesus is a tragic story. It's the most tragic there could possibly be. And that's why I don't like Jesus Christ Superstar, the, the show, the movie, not even the new one with John Legend, because they leave him on the cross. If that's the end, it's the most tragic story that was ever told. And life is tragic enough. It's like the bumper sticker, life is hard and then you die. And we all go, yeah, that's exactly right. Life is hard and then you die. But I love that Jesus turns life into a triumph. That Jesus came to do the great work of dying for us. 
Now, with all of that in mind, on the one who has impacted the world in a greatest way. And I want to, to remind you that the Old Testament promised that one person was going to come who was going to bless the entire world. That's the promises of the Messiah. And there's dozens of them in the Old Testament. One unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given. He will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. We were promised a child was going to be born for us. A son was going to be given for us. And over and over again, God told Abraham, one of your seed, meaning descendant, and not seeds in the plural, but seed uh, individually. One of your seed, one of your descendants is going to bless all nations. Tell me, who else qualifies? I like to ask people that don't know Christ, Christ questions. And I like to ask them because I really want to know them. I'm not playing a game. I really want to know what they think. And so I'll ask them, do you, do you believe in heaven? It's usually after they find out I'm a pastor. I say, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in an afterlife? Do you believe in God? And, and I'm listening. And then I'll try to repeat it back to them in a very real way. I don't want to build a straw man I can tear down easily. If they say, well, I believe that there's a light and we'll float into the light and we're going to find out what eternity is and we don't know. And so I'll say, so when people die, they see a light and they're drawn towards the light. When you go in the light, there's, there's peace and joy and happiness and all of those things. They'll say, yeah, you got it. And sometimes they're surprised that a pastor would respond that way. Because oftentimes pastors are like, what a bunch of hogwash, you know? But I like to listen to them and hear what they're actually saying when uh, God's the same way. He wants to know, and we see that in our text that is here today. But the Old Testament is full of passages that talk about the prophecies of the Messiah. And I like, oh, the question I like to ask, I got lost. I'm back. The, uh, could you tell by my stammering there for a few minutes? Uh, one of the questions I like to ask people is, who do you think the Messiah was? I tell them there's dozens of promises in the Old Testament about one man who would change the whole world. Who do you think that is? Most often they say Jesus, because who else? The second most popular is Gandhi. Yeah, I, get, I heard some giggling with Gandhi. And here's why. Gandhi was a train wreck. Now, you, there's, there's certain movies about his life where they make him look like he's something special. But just do a little bit of studying on Gandhi. Look at what Gandhi did to women. Just look into that. And you'll realize this cannot be the Messiah. In reality, there's no one else. There's no one else who qualifies there's no one else who could be called the Messiah. There's no one else that could be said that he blessed the entire world. But Jesus did. And here we have two people walking down the road on Resurrection Sunday. They already have heard that Jesus, that something's happened. The tomb's empty. People are saying Jesus rose from the dead. But they're, they're there. They're a part of it. This is, we know his name is Cloopus. He's married to Mary, which is shocking because there are so many Marys in the Bible, right? So he's married to Mary. And we know that his wife was at the cross. The Bible tells us that there was Mary, the mother of Jesus there, that there was Mary Magdalene there, and Mary, the wife of Cloopus. So his wife was at the cross. So they have been deeply affected by it. And even if she's not the other disciple, he's been deeply affected by it because of what his wife saw when she saw the brutality of them driving the nails through his flesh and into that tree as he died for you. And they hung him up between the heavens and the earth and he hung there for six hours. Now, as they go along the road, something surprising happens. And so it starts off, verse 13, now behold. And that now behold is really interesting. Uh, we don't have anything like it in the English. 
when, when sometimes we'll say to people, you got to hear this. Something happened, you got to hear this. On YouTube, you'll find all kinds of videos. You must see this. Don't miss this. You've got to see this. That's like the equivalent to and behold, right? But once you click on it, you realize pretty quick, I didn't need to see this. This is false advertisement. This is a lie. The and beholds in the Bible are not false advertisement. They're telling you something spectacular is about to happen, and it does. And behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on why they didn't recognize him, which is really funny when you think about it. Uh, people will write commentaries about anything. Here's some of the things that, that I've read. The sun was in their eyes, so they didn't recognize Jesus. Oh, his voice or even glance and cover up their eyes. Uh, Jesus was so beaten brutally that he was disconfigured and they didn't recognize him. And, and that wouldn't be somehow in the text that this guy walks up beside him and has been beaten and he just, hi guys, how are you? And they're like, yeah, what happened to you? Right? We don't need to spill ink over it because it says their eyes were restrained. God created the world. God can cause your eyes not to recognize someone. That's all that happened here. God restrained their eyes. I wonder if God's ever restrained your eyes from seeing the work of God in your life. And later on, you looked back and said, that was God. That was God. In fact, I know it. You know how I know? I can tell by your reactions. I'm just looking at it in the room here and you guys going, yep, yep, that happened. And so Jesus joins them and their eyes are restrained. And I love that Jesus asks them questions. And again, the Bible says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. And especially when you are sharing Christ with your loved ones around you, don't be quick to speak. Listen. Let them know you care about them. Let them know you're genuinely interested in them. I don't ask questions as a, as a method of trying to win people to Christ. I ask questions because I genuinely want to know people. And I want to know people who don't know Jesus. And I want to know what they believe. And it leads to opportunities to share Christ. But that's just a byproduct of loving people and caring about people. And so Jesus asked the question. He said to them, what kind of conversation is it that you are having with one another and you walk and are so sad? Then to one of those, who, uh, the one whose name is Cloopus, answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not heard the things that happened in these days? The, the death of Jesus had gone through the city of Jerusalem, swollen by all of the people there for Passover. Jesus died on the day they killed the lambs for Passover. The Passover lambs were remembering when the death angel passed over and didn't kill the firstborn in Egypt. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, died on the same day the Passover lamb died so that the death angel could pass over your life and you could be given eternal life. These are just the kind of depths you find in the Bible. It's so, it's so full of that kind of stuff. The critics will say, the Bible was written by Bronze Age goat herders. It's always a Bronze Age goat herder. I don't know, maybe some of them were goat herders, but it was the Bronze Age. But do you think they didn't have scholarly work? 
You think they didn't have deep thinkers? You think they didn't have literary agents that were incredible? I know they did because Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is, is full of literary agents. It's, it's more like a poem than anything else. And it's got all of these connections throughout the book. It's amazing. And the more you study the prophecies of the Bible, the foreshadowings in the Bible, the types in the Bible, you are truly moved by it. And so Jesus said, why are you so sad? And they say, well, the, you're the only person in Jerusalem that has never heard these. And he said to them, what things? He just carries it on. Well, what things? What are you talking about? He wants to hear how they respond. And they said to him, these things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Now, two things about their answer. Number one, they have a misconception of the work God was doing through Jesus. They were hoping they were going to redeem Israel, which means they wanted the occupation of Rome to stop. Israel was a land living under an occupation of a brutal Roman government. So you saw what they did to Jesus, and they quickly crucified people. It's the way Rome controlled their occupied territories. They crucified you. You, 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 there's Roman law, you couldn't crucify a Roman. But if you were in an occupied territory and you got uppity, they'd crucify you. And they'd hang you out in the middle of the road and let people see, you guys want to get uppity? This is what's going to happen to you. And to them, the greatest thing that could happen for them was to be delivered from the occupation. And you may understand that, right? They're living under occupation. That'd be like the, you want it every day. But Jesus was doing a greater work. Jesus didn't just come to deliver them from occupation. He came to forgive the whole world of its sins. And not just the whole world of their time, but of all time. He came on a greater mission. The greatest need of every man, woman, and child in the world today is the forgiveness of sin. I don't care whatever else need you have. There was this, this great account in the Bible where Jesus is teaching in a house and then people are bringing a paralyzed man. They've heard Jesus is healing people and they can't bring the man into the house. And so they lower him through the roof. Talk about a service distraction. All of a sudden dust is flying, the roof's being torn off and here comes this man. Lowered down in front of Jesus. And Jesus, and they're up there holding the ropes, right? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, your sins are forgiven you. And the guys holding the ropes are like, he's paralyzed. He's paralyzed. Doesn't he sit? Paralyzed. Doesn't he sense right? Paralyzed, right? They're thinking, what are you doing? We lowered him because he's paralyzed. We didn't lower him because he's a sinner. But Jesus knew his need for forgiveness was greater than his need to be healed from being paralyzed. And then Jesus said, so you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. And the paralyzed man picked up his bed and walked out of it. And now we know that Jesus forgives sins. And that's the greatest need. See, here's, here's what I'm wondering. They had a misconception about what Jesus was doing. He was doing something grander. He was doing something greater. They had this horrible thing going on in their lives. They wanted to be delivered from that. So they lost hope. We had hoped that he would be the one to deliver Israel. Now they lost hope. Living without hope is, is the worst. The Bible says there are three great things. Now there is faith, hope, 
and love. And the greatest of these is love. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Love is, you fulfill the law by love. All that's true. But there's those two other great things. It's by faith that we're saved. That's great. And hope keeps you going. If you are living a life without hope, if you're here today and you have no hope, I, I truly feel bad for you. Because to get to the place where you don't think things are going to change and you are in a bad, horrible situation and it just continues to go on, you get to the place where you don't want to go on. Maybe suicidal, but I think most times not. You're just like, I'll live this out, this horrible existence, but you have no hope of anything getting better. That's a horrible place to be. Let me read you a verse in the Bible about hope because I think God wants to give you hope. Hope comes from promises. Hope comes from a promise, things will get better. And the Bible's full of God saying, I will make things better. If it's not in this life, it's in the life to come. That's our hope. But listen to this verse about giving hope. The Bible says in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope, did you know that about God? That he is the God of hope? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so it's in believing that you have the joy and peace from the God of hope that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope not only wants you to have hope, but to abound in hope. And here's the thing about hope. You can go through anything if you have the hope that it's going to change. I have an illustration and you guys are going to remember this illustration the rest of your lives. I promise you. All right. It's an illustration about a study, a study that was done by a John Hopkins professor. And you can look it up. He studied rats. He studied drowning rats. Can you imagine getting the students for your study on that one? We're going to do a study. I would like you to join us. Well, what's your study? Well, we're going to drown a couple hundred rats. Okay, I guess. It's kind of a brutal thing, right? To drown rats. But they are rats, so I don't know. I'm torn, all right? Uh, so he did three studies. The third one is the one we're interested in. After drowning dozens of rats, and he was learning every, he was learning everything he could about drowning rats. I don't know where he got this idea from. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a study on seeing what happens when you drown rats. And so he drowned a bunch of rats and took a bunch of notes and did a study. But his last one was really interesting. He would put the rat in the bucket. The rat would start swimming. He would time how long it took him until he was ready to go. And he knew when it was done because he drowned a bunch of rats already. Experience told him he knew when this rat was finished. So right before the rat died, he would pull it out, pet it, give it CPR. No, I don't know if he ever did that, but pet it, just kind of let it know, hey, it's okay, it's okay, put it back in its cage. And then he did that to like several rats. Then he took the rats back and he put them back in again. And then they swam around for 10 times longer. His conclusion, the rats had hope. They had been saved one time. They knew they could be saved again. Don't underestimate the power of hope and don't live a hopeless life. And one of the things that can make you hopeless is when you have the wrong expectations about Jesus. They had hoped he would redeem Israel because he didn't redeem Israel, they lost their hope. So you say, well, well, I'm not going to follow God because he didn't do this for me. He didn't do that for me. I had someone say to me recently, God's done nothing for me. 
ever. I'm, I'm so, I feel bad for them because God's done so much for them, but they've had the wrong expectations about him. And, and no wonder there are so many preachers, some of the biggest churches in America, don't teach the truth. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Peter said, don't be surprised when you encounter fiery trials. Fiery trials, not just trials. Peter, aren't trials bad enough? Do they have to be fiery trials that I'm gonna get? So you turn on the TV and there's the preachers today, the largest churches in America. Come to Jesus, he's gonna make you happy. He wants to give you enthusiasm. He wants you to live a life that you are full and doing all that you can do. He wants, you know, and that's what they're teaching. It's a whole sermon. It's a whole sermon on enthusiasm. And people go, oh, I'm enthusiastic now. <laughs> oh, okay. But if your expectation is that Jesus is coming to help you, instead of you coming to him to help him, no wonder you've lost your hope. If you're saying, there's a saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's a good saying. But some people say this, I love God and I've got a wonderful plan for his life. You're going to be my giant Santa in the sky and you're going to give me everything I want. And when anything bad happens to me or my family, then you're going to fix it. And if you won't do it, I won't follow you. And I find when I talk to atheists, that atheists have a venom towards God, which is interesting. Why, why should they have a venom? If God doesn't exist, then why do they care? It should just be, well, God don't exist and we're just existing here. We're just living our lives today. But they hate God and they hate Christians. Why? Look, if you believe that Mickey Mouse is your God, I'm not gonna hate Mickey Mouse. Right? I'm not gonna hate you for believing in Mickey Mouse. I'm just gonna go kind of sad that <laughs> you believe in Mickey Mouse as God. Why do they hate God so much? Because many of them had wrong expectations. And I realize some of you have had wrong expectations on God as well. And you've lost your hope and you've walked away from God because he didn't do what you wanted him to do. But that's not what the call is. The call is for you to sacrifice your life for him. The call is for you to continue to do the work that Jesus did on the cross. And that's the greatest call. That's the greatest work that we could do. He did that great work. And we are now called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth and to finish the work that Jesus started. That's the church. And the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against us and you're the light of the world and you're the salt of the earth and put on your armor and your feet prepared with the gospel and stand and pray. God's got a call on your life. He wants to call you because he wants you to be part of the greatest work that's ever been done on this earth, the saving of souls. And he wants you to be a part of it. Not just so you can come to him and not have bad things happen to you. I'm sorry that bad things happen to you. They happen to me too. I'm sorry that the ones you love the most have died. I've lost the ones I love the most. It's part of life. Life is tragic, but God turns it into a triumph because we know one day we'll stand with him. So Jesus, so they had this expectation and then they say, indeed, besides all of these things, today is the third day since these things happened. Now we learn that they've, these guys on the road walking away, they lost their hope. They learned about the empty tomb. It says, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had found, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And so the women came back and go, we found the, the tomb empty. And we looked in and there were two angels. 
And one of them said, he's not here, he's risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And they ran and told the disciples this. But the disciples are so distraught because of this horrible thing that has happened. One of the worst things that's ever happened in all of humanity. This loving, gentle, kind, uh, loving of sinners man. The miracle working, delivering man who gets crucified. And they're distraught by it. And so when the women come in, we saw him, we saw him. There are angels, we saw him. You guys, or, or not we saw him, but, but the, the, angel, the tomb's empty. There are angels, said he was risen. What did the disciples do? Ah, we don't believe you. It's not true. And then it goes on to say, and certain of those who were with us went and found the tomb as the women said. That's Peter and John. Mary Magdalene ran back to get Peter and John. Peter and John ran back to the tomb. Uh, Peter went in, John got there, looked in, Peter went in, and it says that Peter saw, and then it says, and John looked in, and the word it's used for see is to believe. John is the first one to believe that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. The youngest, the youngest who went to the cross, the youngest who, who looked in the tomb and believed. And then they said, so, um, and say, yeah, they say, but they did not see him, but they didn't see Jesus. Now, Mary Magdalene had seen Jesus as well. Mary Magdalene showed up at the tomb. She's crying. She looks in the tomb. There's nothing there. Jesus appears. She thinks he's the gardener. She turns to the gardener and she says, where have you, where have you taken him? I want to take him away. And uh, which is interesting because Jesus, who knows what he weighed, but he was packed with about 150 pounds of spices because that's how they embalmed people in their day. And she's like, I'll take his body away. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of about Mary Magdalene, what she would have looked like, but I don't see her as one, let me give him his body, I'll take it away. <laughs> don't you even mess with me. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry, we're not, I'm not going to mess with you. But Jesus, she turned away from the gardener and Jesus said, Mary. And she turned back around and said, Rabboni, teacher. And she embraced him. And she ran back and told the disciples. Now these two were gone, but she ran back and told the disciples and the disciples said, ah, we don't believe you. Now that's not surprising. When we think about the resurrection, we're being asked to believe something that's supernatural, something that doesn't happen. Dead people don't rise. So if you struggle with believing it, you're not alone. The early disciples struggled to believe it. And they were there. They saw the miracles Jesus did. They had an advantage. Jesus said, blessed are those who have seen and believed, but more blessed are those who do not see and yet they believe. So if you make a choice to say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and it is a choice. You can choose to believe. Don't tell me you don't. You watch the news all the time, hear false stories and say, I think that happened. I know that happened. You're choosing to believe. You, and, and belief is a choice. People say, I can't believe. No, no, you won't believe. And there is enough evidence. We're not asking for blind faith. There's, the Bible foretells the future. The Bible gives prophecies. This, we live in a day we can search these things out. So Jesus responds now. And I love that he says this to him. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. He calls them foolish ones. Here's a stranger walking down the road. Why are you guys so sad? They tell him, how foolish are you? O foolish ones. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered all of these things and entered into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. One thing you discover as you look back in the Bible is it's full of references to Jesus. The Old Testament. 
one of the first works done on this, which is still one of the most comprehensive works on Jesus in the Old Testament, was done in the 1600s. We think those people didn't know what they were talking about, and they found all of these accounts in the Bible that speak of Jesus. I'll give you one example. The critics will say, you follow a God who told Abraham to kill his son, to sacrifice his son. You follow a God that wanted a man to sacrifice his son. How can you follow a God like that? My first response when they ask me that question is, have you read Genesis 22? I know they didn't because they don't even know what that is. They go, is, is that where the account is? Yeah, that's where the account is. Some of them say, yeah, I read it. And I say, well, then you know that in the very beginning, it says this was a test. God was testing Abraham and told him to take his son, Isaac. Isaac had a promise through Isaac, every nation in the world will be blessed. So if he kills Isaac, that promise can't come true. So Hebrews tells us that Abraham thought he was going to kill him and God was going to raise him from the dead because God would not be a liar and would not bless the world through Isaac. God was going to bless the world through Isaac and he thought it was going to be through the resurrection. That's what was going on in Abraham's head. So God shows him a certain mountain to do this on. He brings Isaac up on the mountain. Isaac says, Dad, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? <laughs> and, I, and Isaac's about 30 here, by the way. And Isaac could have, and, and he said, uh, well, God will take care of the sacrifice. God will provide himself a sacrifice, which is prophetic. God will provide himself a sacrifice. God will become the sacrifice. And then he says, um, God's going to take care of that. God's going to provide it. I think that Isaac could have said, 30 years old, his dad's 100 or something. He could have said, why don't we sacrifice you, dad? Why don't we flip this around here a little bit? I'll give you as a sacrifice. So an angel stops him. Right? He binds him up, an angel stops him, and God provides a ram in the thickets. But here's the thing. The mountain that he brought him to, take your son to a mountain I will show you, is Mount Moriah, which is in Jerusalem, and it's the Temple Mount. It's the mount where all the sacrifices were made in the temple for the hundreds of years that the temple stood there, and God told a man to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. On the bottom of Mount Moriah is a hill called Golgotha or Calvary, and that's where Jesus was crucified. God gave his son and sacrificed him for our sins on the same mountain that Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son. It was a type, a foreshadowing. It's an amazing type. You walk away from it going, how incredible this is. And there's so much more of that. I'm so blessed that my life is digging into this word and finding those things. There's so many types and foreshadows that you find. He could have gone to Psalms 22, which is a first person account of crucifixion a thousand years before it started. I know I said that fast, so let me just say this. A first person account of a crucifixion. How is a person who was crucified going to tell you about the crucifixion? They, they pierced my hands and feet. Psalms 22, that's the Old Testament. The dogs have surrounded me. They shoot out at the lips for me. They say, you trusted in God. Let him be the one who delivers him. My, I, I, my tongue clings to my jaw. Jesus said, I thirst. Psalms 22 starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? He says, I cry to you in the daytime and in the nighttime. It was dark for an hour on the cross. And then it says at the end of the Psalm, God has done it, which could be translated, it is finished. What are the last words Jesus said before he died? It is finished. And in Psalms 22, the crucified person has them divide their garments among them and cast, cast lots for his clothing. It's amazing. And when I say it's amazing, <laughs> I don't know what other word to use. <laughs> it's, like, it's like totally amazing, the Valley Girls would say. 
Isaiah 53, all of these Jesus would have gone through. All right, now so verse 28. They draw near to the village where they were going and he in indicated that he would go further. Now, again, people are critical here. They say, well, Jesus was being deceptive. He was like, he wanted to go in with them, but he's like, I'm gonna go this way. I'm gonna keep going. Okay, bye-bye. You know, like he wants to be invited, but he's not. It doesn't say that. If it's funny, you could just read what's said. He indicated he would go further. So he got to their house and he's like, I'll see you guys later. And he walked on. Had he not gotten an invitation, he would have walked on. He wasn't going to go into their house without an invitation. And here's the thing about Jesus. He won't go into your life without an invitation. He's waiting for you to say, I want you in my life. He doesn't want to come into your life and force his way in. He's not coming to you and say, yeah, I'm going to go to you. I'm going to live in your life and you're going to be a Christian. I'm going to take you to heaven forever. Like, I don't want to go. Guess I have to. And that's not Jesus. So it says he indicated that he would go further, but 29, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table that he broke the bread or he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew it was Jesus and he vanished from their sight. And I think they had to be, well, right, right when we know it's you, then you vanish. So now he has a glorified body. He can enter rooms that are locked with the windows locked and the doors locked. He can vanish from their sight. We will have a glorified body, the Bible says, one day like Jesus's. We will be like him. Study for another time. It goes on to say then, and they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? And I hope that happens to you. I hope it's happened to some here this morning that your hearts have burned as you've heard the truth of the word of God. Verse 33, so they rose up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them and gathered saying, now this is what the 11 are saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Maybe they jumped in the door and said, he's risen. And they go, the Lord is risen indeed. And he appeared to Simon. Now, Jesus also appeared to Peter on that first day and they believed him. They didn't believe the women. They didn't believe Mary. But they believe Peter, misogynists. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's just a joke, all right? Maybe a tasteless joke, I understand. But there are people who will say that, by the way. They'll be like, these guys were a bunch of misogynists. They wouldn't believe the women, but they believe Peter when he was told that. But now they believe. They've gone from disbelief to belief. But it's important to understand they didn't believe right away. And, and rarely do it does anyone. When you first hear that Jesus rose from the dead or you grow up in that, you get to a point where you go, oh. Now I can tell you, I have complete confidence today. I can't always tell you that, but I have complete confidence today because of the word of God foretold it, because it was said before it would happen, because of all the foreshadowing and types that you find in the Bible. I have such confidence. But if you don't, it's okay. You can still believe. Three things quickly. Number one, have you invited Jesus into your life? Is he indicating he'll go farther? He will not force his way in. When the Gadarean, when the town of, of the Gadareans, the demoniac that had the legion of demons cast out of him, when the town asked Jesus to leave, the very next verse says Jesus got in a boat and left. If you say, I don't want you in my life, Jesus, he'll leave. He'll leave you alone. You don't want him to leave you alone. This is the Jesus that walked the earth with such compassion 
and you want him in your life. You want to, you want to do the things he's called you to do. You want to be a part of the greatest work to ever be done. Have you invited him in? It's so easy. You simply say, Jesus said, if anyone receives us, me and my father will, will move into your life. You'll live with the son and the father. Do you have proper expectations of Jesus? Are you upset because something horrible has happened to you when you were trusting in God and you thought, if that happened to me, if he let that happen to me, I'm not going to follow him. Could it be wrong expectations? Tragedies happen and they happen to Christians. I don't care what the preacher on TV said. And I'm on TV, I don't say that. I don't care what the preacher on TV says. I don't care that he'll tell you nothing bad will happen to you. I'm telling you in this world, you're going to have trouble. And if you live, well, if you live any length of time, you're not going to avoid tragedy. But if you don't live any length of time, you had tragedy, right? You can't avoid it. If you have wrong expectations, then give your life to Christ. Not so that he can do good things for you, but so that you can, be, you can live for him. So you can sacrifice for him. So you can be called by him. That's what it's about. It's you saying, I'm not living for me anymore. I'm living for you. So I can be a part of what you have for me. And I want to remind you that, blind, that faith is not blind. There is a lot of evidence. But you do have to make a decision to believe. People will say to me, I can't believe. No, 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 no. You won't believe. It's a decision. You can choose to believe things. And people, people today are choosing to believe the earth's flat. What's up with that? Right? There's a flat earth movement today. People are like, we've got scientific evidence that it's flat. Don't tell me you can't believe. People believe all kinds of weird, strange things. You can believe. If you today say, I want to believe. I'll close with this. Billy Graham was having a crisis in his faith as a young man. He didn't know whether everything in the Bible was true. And he took it into the woods and he put it down on a, a tree that had been cut down. And he knelt down before the Bible and he prayed to God, I don't know if everything in here is true, but I believe you and I will believe it. And Billy Graham, life was transformed. And what did he do? He joined Jesus in the greatest work of seeking and saving sinners. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for what you have revealed here through your word. Thank you how incredible your word is. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts and draw the people who are here who have never made a commitment to you to make that commitment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.